Hello, and welcome to Voices of Nexus, where experts discuss and debate issues surrounding mental health. Here in the U.S., it is a sad but common observation that our mental health system is broken. People who need help often can't or don't know how to get it, and resources remain underutilized due to stigma or lack of awareness. Many experience crisis before any intervention. Given the added pressures we face today, these faults are doubly exposed. But there are bright spots. There are visionaries working tirelessly to create a better tomorrow and move us from hopeless to hopeful. Here on Voices of Nexus, we will learn about good progress being made as it relates to the mental health of women, youth, and those in the justice system. This podcast is part of the larger Nexus initiative, sponsored by Otsuka America Pharmaceutical, Inc. Please check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. Hi, I'm Gabe Howard, and I'm excited to be hosting a three-part podcast series, Voices of Nexus. In these podcasts, we will explore the experiences people have as they live with mental health challenges. Through their own stories, our guest brings to life the strengths, weaknesses, and gaps that exist in the mental health system. Each episode focuses on a community with a unique and largely unmet mental health needs, including women, youth, and people in contact with the justice system. I hope these conversations spark new ideas about how we can all be part of the solution on the front lines of mental health. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Lois Swisher. Dr. Swisher is an emergency medicine physician in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and is a person who struggled with suicidal ideation. She's also a caregiver to her daughter who lives with the late effects of childhood cancer. She's an incredible advocate and works to help people better understand mental illness and suicidality in both her role as a doctor and a woman. Dr. Swisher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Gabe. I am so happy to be here and uh, talking about this subject with you. Thank you for being here. And before we move forward, I do want to warn our listeners that we will be frankly discussing suicide. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please seek assistance. You can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Text HOME to 741-741 to reach the crisis text line or contact your local medical resource. Dr. Swisher, before your diagnosis, did you think that you had any mental health issues? Well, first off, I don't uh, really have a diagnosis, as you would call it. I think, but we should go back into my history. My daughter, when she was five years old, and she will be 27 this summer, was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. I had taken her to the pediatric hospital for a reassurance MRI, although I had taken her to uh, evaluate whether she could have a brain tumor. And when she was found to have one, and then she had surgery where she became completely neurologically devastated. She was blind, mute, paralyzed, incontinent. I had an incredible sense of responsibility as a mother and a doctor for what happened to my daughter. And I think what I had was I felt that I had been dealt a bad hand in life and that since I had never known anybody in a really close way who had a disabled child, um, who had a brain tumor, who had childhood cancer, I was very overwhelmed. And so I didn't think that I had anything different than anybody else 
would have had in that situation. I just didn't know what to do. So in that case, sort of my internal pain, my pain as a mother, my pain as a doctor, in being able to help my family was just beyond what I felt that I could cope with at the time. Just to clarify, it really sounds like you're saying that your role as being a mom and and a woman really played into this idea that nothing was wrong. You should be able to handle it on your own. Nothing's amiss. You're going to move forward and, and, you know, essentially be the, the, the strong, silent type and just not complain. Is that how you felt? I think people knew that I was grieving significantly. I don't know that it's that I should be able to handle it, but I should be able to make it right. That as a mom, you want to, as a parent, you want to make it right for your kids. And there's no way to make it right when your kid has cancer. And so when you look at sort of that dark tunnel of a year of treatment and chemotherapy and radiation and this whole um, series of things that you're going to subject your child to, you want to take that pain away. You want to be ready to do whatever it takes so they don't suffer. And as a doctor, was it that I had missed something? Was I not good enough? Was I not around enough? Was I at the hospital taking care of other people and other people's kids? And I wasn't there for my own And that question sort of nagged at me, was I less of a mother because I was a doctor? And was I less of a doctor because as a mother, I maybe didn't realize things or I didn't look at them close enough. So that balance really played on me that I could not, you could not reassure me. Either I was a bad doctor or a bad mother, and it had to be one of them if this happened to my child. It sounds like you were really focused externally and not so much internally. Is, is, is that the case? And do you find others doing that as well? I'm reflecting on this because I think I, I, I looked at this both externally and internally. And my internal dialogue really sort of became only internal. And the reason why that was is... Um, I was looking to reach out to other people. And I think when I looked in their eyes, they wanted to reassure me. They wanted to reassure me that I was a good mother, that I was a good doctor, that I had done everything that I could have done. And that reassurance wasn't helpful. And I was experiencing a depth of feeling beyond anything I had experienced before. My husband had been in counseling and um, as as a therapist. And when we received the diagnosis that my daughter had childhood cancer, he said these type of chronic illnesses, severe illnesses can tear apart a marriage. And so we ended up at his insistence, which was a good idea, starting out in marriage counseling right away. And uh, I talked to the therapist and I told him that if things became torture, that I was a doctor and that I would know how to take care of this. And his response was, well, you're smart. I think you would think of any option. And that was the end of the conversation. 
now we can look back whether that was a good answer or a bad answer. For me, it seemed to give permission to think of every option that was out there. And I'm an emergency physician, so I think of a lot of, of options. And I had access in this realm of a wide variety of options. Not only, you know, I could have chosen that life would be good or that she would have some disabilities, but I tended to focus on the worst of the worst possibilities because as an emergency physician, I want to make sure that those things don't happen. And so having that sort of permission and then not talking about it again drove it into the very silent part of my heart, but was still there. So you had some inkling that something was up and it it sounds like the people that you talked to, the people around you really dropped the ball because they saw you as a, a, a strong mother, a strong wife, a strong doctor, and they figured, ah, you'll be okay. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that the people around you just didn't take this seriously, even though you were clearly reaching out for help? I do think the people around me did not know what to do. And that's one of the reasons that that I I talk about um, my struggles is because I don't know at the time whether they didn't know how to address this or didn't know the resources out there or were trying to think of what would help if somebody talked to them, if, it, if they were in my shoes. But the response, none of those responses addressed that I was going down that path. So um, when you say I was reaching out, um, I did reach out to the therapist. But to my friends, I said things like, they said, how are you doing? I'd say, if there was a merciful God, I wouldn't be here today. And they didn't and, see that as any sort of... Uh, call for help, cry for help, even, did did they respond at all? No, not in a way to engage in that discussion. No, there wasn't, you could see the fear in the eyes that uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what the next thing is. And so in that gap of time, I would realize that this was a dangerous area. We were on dangerous ground. Nobody felt comfortable. I certainly didn't feel comfortable. And so we then went to other subjects, signing out, talking about something else. I'm going to ask a two-part question because you're in a unique position, both as somebody who has lived with suicidality and as a doctor. So answer first from the perspective of you know, just, just a medical practitioner and and then answer from the perspective of a, a woman who experienced this, what can others do to be more supportive of those who are, well, well, frankly, in harm's way? What I would have liked, what the secret is, is that people want to be heard. They want somebody to listen. They want to be able to release those thoughts swirling in their mind that are holding them prisoner and to know that somebody else understands, somebody else will be there. And so to have that listening component and then feeling not alone 
those two things make such a difference. So that's where things didn't go well for me. I continue to have those feelings that life isn't going well. Um, and when you look at uh, some of the CDC stuff from 2018, people that had died by suicide, about 50% of them had no diagnosed mental health condition before that. The life circumstances, whether that is relationship breakups or legal problems or occupational problems, financial issues, those life circumstances can come together to be so overwhelming that another way out just can't be seen. And what that other person can do is listen to those thoughts to release them and then create another vision. What I got stuck in was I got stuck in this one pattern of thinking. This The answer, if things don't work the way I think it will, if things work out the way I think they might with childhood cancer and my daughter's being tortured, that I have to take care of that. My job as a mother is to protect my child from suffering. And those thoughts just kept repeating in my mind I think if I would have had a different perspective, that that wouldn't have perseverated in my mind. Dr. Swisher, now put on your doctor hats. And, and I, I know that they're intrinsically linked in, in you, but somebody walks up to you and says, Dr. Swisher, I, I'm worried about my friend who is uh, dropping these hints. What should I do? What would you tell them? Listen, there is a wide variety of gatekeeper training out there that actually teach the person in the community how to respond uh, to suicidal ideation specifically. The one that I took is called QPR, question, persuade, and refer. And this gives anybody in the community the chance to reach out to somebody in need. And the reason that I like that idea is it sounds like CPR. I'm an emergency physician. We look at the community and we want everybody to know CPR. If somebody drops of cardiac arrest, we want them to be right there, be ready to know how to put on the uh, AED, how to do um, the compressions. And if we train people to learn how to do that, when there is sudden um, cardiac death, we can revive people. So if we can teach people how to respond to this real emotional pain that causes suicidal crisis, then we can save people just by listening, by drawing them out. And I think that that's really the thing here is that it's not the psychiatrist, it's not the therapist that is generally going to be right there, particularly the first time that somebody's going down this path of suicidal ideation. They may realize that, but it's probably before they know who to re reach out to that they've really established a trust in counseling. And it's going to be a family member, a colleague, somebody who's arm's length away. I mean, it may be somebody even in the grocery store that just recognizes a look and says, are you okay? No, really, are you okay? That's going to make the difference. Dr. Swisher, we spent a lot of time talking about your past. 
let's talk about today. How are you doing right now? I'm doing great now. Life is going very well for me in many different ways um, with my family, my friends, my occupation. I know it's COVID. We have COVID times and uh, the last year has seen a lot of hardship for many people. I have been in the middle of COVID clouds in the emergency department. I have lost friends uh, and colleagues to this disease. It has been devastating to, to many communities. Having said that, that basis in um, strengthening my um, mental health, my ability to pursue happiness, to see the silver lining in things, I think made me um, more able to ride the, what I call is the waves of instability. We've had lots of waves of instability lately, and it's given me a resilience, an ability to own the ground beneath my feet in figuring out how to navigate things. Is there anything in particular that helped you move forward and get to this place? Yes. So for 16 years after my daughter was diagnosed, um, I had learned not to talk about this. I am in a community that is not help-seeking. Physicians are not ones that are going to be reaching out for help on these issues. We're very much like pilots and police, that we have this concern um, about our license and livelihood, which is real. There is a, a culture that is concerned that not showing strength in everything, being human is a flaw. And I think one of the things that I learned was that we are human uh, and we all go through these trials of life. The thing that helped me was in 2016, there was an emergency medicine resident who killed himself um, and his program director started talking about this openly. The unexpected nature that we haven't hadn't talked about these type of things. He had been a program director for 15 years. That that silence was creating a risk for people. And what I realized is I had this experience of having these thoughts, having life circumstances, which really were beyond my control and I did not know how to cope with at the time. Had I had other people who had been down this road, um, even if it was a little different, just to say, hey, I've had those thoughts and this is how I got through them. This is what helped me, um, whether that was reading books or creating a safety plan, whether it was sharing my story or reaching out to other groups, that would have helped. So the thing that helped me was this particular person that started reaching out, telling their story from the other side of what it was like for them to have one of their colleagues, junior colleague, a resident, kill themselves. And I saw that impact that I could have had 
that was when the healing started happening because we were able to talk about it. And once you give light to that, then you can start resolving some of the issues. And for all that time, 16 years, I thought silence was keeping me free, not talking, but actually silence was the prison. It was keeping me from moving forward. I think those are incredibly wise and powerful words because if we're not getting them out of our minds, they, they live in there and they, they sort of go unchecked and unchallenged. In those 16 years that you described, is that what it felt like to you that your mind essentially just had free reign to say whatever it wanted and nobody challenged it? And then when you were able to talk about it and you say, I feel this way or I'm thinking this, people would give you another point of view that you could then consider? Um, So the way I handled that 16 years from crisis, uh, and I did proceed from if there's a merciful God, I wouldn't be here to there's nothing going on that 100 units of insulin wouldn't cure. I did get to the point of rehearsal and crisis, but I did not attempt. Um, I reached a point that said, Either it will be today or never. And clearly I'm here talking to you. So that was uh, a never, but I did not know how to handle those feelings. So my approach was that I was not going to have feelings, that I should not have desires, wishes, dreams, that my entire life should be dedicated to other people. If I was thinking about doing that, the way to... mm, atone for the sin. Uh, Not everybody would agree with that, but that was sort of how I felt, was that I should dedicate my time to my daughter, to other families who have kids with brain tumors, um, to do the right thing for my patients. And I froze all those thoughts. So 16 years later, when I started talking about it, I had to unpack every, I I had not grown, I had not changed. I was frozen in time and it was just as difficult uh, as it was 16 years before. It was like time had not passed and that was the difficult thing. Dr. Swisher, why do you think we asked you to be part of this podcast series? You know, I really thought about that for a long time because I don't have an organization of my own. Although I write, I work, I write for um, a variety of national organizations. And I think why I was chosen, the thing that I have is that I have a story. And the healing thing for many people who've had suicidal ideation, whether that's from mental health diagnoses or overwhelming life challenges, is we don't tell those stories very much. And oftentimes the ones we hear about are those that don't make it. The power is of the story in suicidal ideation is not as much in those who sadly aren't here today, but it is those stories of hope and recovery that it's possible to come through that dark night of the soul that many of us, just because the fact that we're human, have obstacles, unexpected challenges, complicated grief in our life. And because we don't share that, because it's the best of everybody that's on Facebook, we think everybody else is having a better life than we have. 
that somehow they're more special than we are, that if me as, as a physician have had these thoughts because I'm also a mother, I'm also a wife, I also understand that grief and sadness that life hands to you, that maybe you can say, well, you know, it's just that we're all one part of the same human race. And if I look for somebody else who's gotten through this, it may not be all what you know, social media it dishes out, that uh, that's not really life. And we should look at the balance. There are going to be days that it's rainy. Sometimes it's a hurricane. But there's other days that um, if you can just hold on to the belief that the sun will come, there, that there will be warm times to spend with your family, um, you can make it through that time. I love your candor and I love your honesty. And I, I love that it's, it's, it's unpolished. It's unvarnished. This is what you went through. And I know that there are people who will relate. And on the other side of it, you became an incredible advocate. I love your advocacy work. And I know that one of the things that you are working on that is very near and dear to your heart is the way that your fellow medical practitioners discuss mental illness, mental health, and suicidality. What changes would you like to see as it pertains to the way that doctors discuss those very serious topics, especially with their patients? Well, there's a number of things. One of the things that I think we have to do um, is change the language. Uh, media does this very well. They're media guidelines. But the rest of society has not necessarily picked up as, as quickly. Uh, one of the easy free things we can do that has exactly the same number of letters in print is instead of using the word commit suicide is to use the words died by suicide. To me, the best way I can explain that is it feels like how people would describe a microaggression. Somebody says that and they don't realize the impact on the person who has lived that experience. Um, commit brings up automatically the feeling of sin, crime, something that's unchangeable. You commit to your marriage, you commit to your college. And we need to change that idea that this is a sin or this is something that people are guilty of because really it isn't. It is, life is out of balance. Maybe it is a, a mental health issue, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. Maybe it is life is just overwhelming and you've had financial collapse and your relationship has fallen apart and you're divorced and you're not going to be able to see your kids, at least that's what you think, that we need to not be ashamed of those things, that we need to talk about that. So the first thing I think we need to do is change the language and say, died by suicide. There is no other committed death. Nobody commits cancer. Nobody commits a heart attack. If they're thinking about dying from suicide, it's because they're overwhelmed by pain, emotional or physical pain, that they don't know how to deal with. I'm an emergency physician. I should be able to help with any 
crisis out there. We like to say we have the you know, most intense, best 15 minutes of every specialty. Well, the most intense part of arguably the biggest mental health crisis, suicide, thinking of uh, killing yourself, is that moment. And we need to be able to talk about it which we don't very much, psychiatrists may, but a lot of other specialties don't. And we need to be able to give everybody out there a framework. Um, and there's a lot, like I said, there's lots of gatekeeper training. Uh, the one that I sort of made up for, for physicians, it goes with the same thing, but it's lead. Listen, engage in the conversation, ask follow-up questions, and develop a plan with that person. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to the crisis center. It could be, but it may be a check-in. It may be developing your own uh, safety plan, uh, a, a crisis management plan, who you're going to call, what your resources are, how are you going to distract yourself. And when you know how to lead people from that suicidal ideation, I think we can change the trajectory of this in the entire American population. Dr. Swisher, thank you so much for being here. We're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you, how is your daughter doing today? Uh, that's always the thing that I forget when I talk about this. I spend so much time in that uh, dark place. And I think we, we do that a lot of times when we talk about these issues. I have been very lucky. She will be 27. She is happy. She is healthy. Last night, uh, she was working on her uh, and brought new, new skills of an embroidery uh, sewing machine. And um, so life is, life is good. Life is really, really good. Thank you once again for being here. And please thank your daughter for allowing you to talk about her life so publicly. It's, it's, it's appreciated. I know it's a family affair. So thank everybody that supports you too. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this. Because I think the more we bring this out into the light and talk about it, it will make a difference. Thanks for listening to Voices of Nexus. Don't forget to check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook.